Good morning, and uh, it is seven minutes after 10 o'clock. Just a few minutes ago, apparently the House Committee on Elections approved four pieces of legislation dealing with the process of amending the Constitution. They're now going to move on to the next committee and the full House for consideration. And uh, there was a meeting uh, had with the Attorney General, that would be uh, Andrew Bailey, about the uh, legal challenges to the Second Amendment Preservation Act. Ron Calzone is going to be with us at about 10.35 to cover all that ground. Uh, but we kick off this segment of the program with Patrick Ishmael. He, of course, is the Director of Government Accountability at the Show Me Institute. Uh, and apparently he watched and listened to Governor Parsons' State of the State address. Um, what's your takeaway, Patrick? And welcome to the program. Hey, Gary. Yeah, so I was pretty disappointed in the governor's speech. Um, you know, I think that from our perspective, uh, the state has a lot to do in terms of tax cuts and reform and, and better and more efficient and more effective and a more accountable government. And the governor's state of the state address really did not deal with any of those issues at all. In fact, most of the focus was on spending. And it isn't that spending, uh, you know, some of this surplus that we have currently is is a bad idea. So, for instance, uh, there's been a lot of talk about making repairs to Interstate 70, and that's been a debate that's been had for probably the better part of a decade at this point. And, you know, I think there's something to be said for uh, making changes that so long as you can maintain the added lanes that you might be adding to the road. You know, the, the, the sorts of things that the governor talked about, I think, are within the realm of, of, of possibility for even small government folks to get behind. But when the governor's talking about things like creating new uh, government programs, like uh, creating a universal pre-K in this state, uh, you know, you look at the Heritage Foundation, for instance, and the Heritage Foundation has found time and time again the universal pre-K is is basically a boondoggle uh, that is not effective at, at pushing forward the educational objectives of, of young children, you know, that survive through their K-12 experience. It great is, for the unions. It's a good way to spend money, but, but it, it isn't a good way to educate kids. It's, a great, it's great for the school unions. Yeah, well, and, and that's part of the, the, the issue here is that you look at Missouri's educational system right now, and, you know, we used to be 14th in the country uh, in terms of math performance. Now, this is 1992. But you look today, and we're more like 35th or 36th, and we've never spent more money on education than we do today. If you go to our, uh, one of our websites, moschoolrankings.org, you can actually go through and see, you know, what is being spent per kid in every district in the state. Uh, you can look at what their performance has been. And when you realize that, you know, only about one in three kids in Missouri is proficient in, in math and in reading, uh, it, it really is illuminating. So when you start talking about all these new spending programs, but you're not talking about reform, I, I think I think there needs to be a lot more self-reflection by the governor's office about you know what what their role is here. I, I think they have an important role to play in leading reform and leading accountability and leading you know things like uh, a transparency in, in education, which, which we've talked a lot about, or. Uh, you know, even choice in education, which I think the governor doesn't talk a whole lot about, but he ought to talk a lot about, because I think that drives innovation and drives opportunities for kids to escape bad schools and bad districts. Uh, you really don't see it much, if any of that. I mean, and again, it's not that spending is an issue, but if you're, if you're only going to talk about spending and you're not going to talk about relieving the burden of taxes when you have the surplus the state has or ensuring that kids can get a better education, uh, you know, when you know that, that uh, our educational system has been failing for literally decades. 
you know, it really ended up being a very disappointing season, and I think the governor can do much better. Well, you know, I just there was another state just yesterday, and I can't remember which state it was, that uh, passed legislation that allows the uh, dollar to follow the scholar, that sort of thing. Uh, and that's what yeah, we well, need to... I, I believe it was Iowa. I think it was, it was very close by. And, and Iowa's not the only one. Of course, Arizona kind of engineered a, a lot of the, these potential reforms. But, you know, the, the state of Missouri already has a program in place that it could reform and expand uh, that would be something pretty similar called the Most Scholars Program. But in the meantime, if, if you can get interdistrict choice, if you can just expand the opportunities for, for choice in any way that you can, I think that's going to help a lot of kids. And, and the, the sad thing, too, is that you don't get a second bite of the apple. When you fail a kid for, you know, or fail kids for two decades, you don't get a, an opportunity to, to fix that situation. But, you know, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The next best time to plant a tree is today, and I think the tree of school choice needs to be planted now and not later. The problem with government is they always think the, the solution, and that's what they sell, the solution is more money. And, and it's just good money after bad. Uh, yeah, and uh, one of the fascinating things, too, I think, is that, you know, the governor at the start of his speech started by kind of, uh, you know, reminding folks that we did have a tax cut last year, which was important. But but he flowed right from that into uh, the tax incentives that were passed for a, a lot of agricultural interests. And, and you know, everybody has the right and the opportunity to, to seek out benefits for themselves. This is not about ag interests. But when when you're the governor... What you should be really pushing and promoting and celebrating is the sort of thing that uh, benefits everybody, that is reform-oriented, not just, you know, that, that kind of uh, benefits one particular group. But it's, it's that benefits everybody. And I think that tax reform is much better than, you know, passing out more tax incentives. Uh, and I think that it's much easier and much, you know, more fun, I guess, to, you know, go to a, a, a groundbreaking, for instance, that you tax incentivize and put on a hard hat and, and get the picture taken and send out press release. But the hard work of governing is really, I think, more deliberate and has to be much more like wide, widely focused. Uh, and I think, unfortunately, just spending spending money or, or celebrating tax incentives or, and benefits for small groups of people, that's not the way that you govern effectively and, and accountably. Patrick Ishmael with us, if you just joined us from the Show Me Institute. Uh, he's got a piece up at showmeinstitute.org, Missouri's State of the Bloating State. You know, with um, with Medicaid uh, getting more and more expensive and eating a bigger and bigger chunks of the budget every year, you would think they'd be looking at ways to um, to cut back on spending. Uh, and, and, and I don't I don't see where they're doing that. Yeah, I mean, there, there are limitations to what you can do with the Medicaid program right now, unfortunately. Until at least April, there are going to be probably about 400,000 people technically enrolled in the Medicaid program that the state can't remove because of COVID regulations from, from the federal government. Now, starting in April, uh, I think that, you know, looking at who is actually eligible for the program, uh, it's probably going to save the state a little bit of money. But, uh, you know, especially with health care, it can be very tricky because, the, the state doesn't have a whole lot of control over, like, the national health care system. Uh, and unfortunately, it doesn't have a whole lot of latitude with the Medicaid program that it, it has already adopted, including the, expand, the expanded Medicaid program. But what the state can do in terms of health care is increase the, the supply of providers. And that can mean a lot of different things. That can mean repealing the certificate of need. That can mean uh, ensuring that assistant physicians are able to practice permanently in this state, which uh, in, in Missouri we have a, a position called an assistant physician, which is pretty innovative, which allows for physicians that haven't matched 
uh, with a hospital, for instance, to be able to practice in certain parts of the state under certain conditions. That, that's a good program. You need to make sure that nurse practitioners are able to practice to the extent of their training, which means that, you know, not necessarily having to enter into a collaborative practice agreement with a doctor. Um, but to, to the extent that, you know, we're trying to uh, deal with the, the healthcare costs that are, you know, kind of being bloated into Medicaid. I mean, and again, Medicaid constitutes over one third, maybe 40 percent of the state's budget right now. I mean, there is a question about whether the state uh, is, is, a, is a government that sometimes provides health care or whether it's a health care provider that sometimes governs. Um, but to the extent that you can do anything about health care costs, you really need to look at reform. You can't just be spending more and more money. And so, you know, the state has limitations on what it can do to kind of, you know, bring back the Medicaid program. But especially if you're not going to be able to save a whole lot of, of money in the Medicaid program short term, you really shouldn't be committing yourself to spending in other areas long term. And, and that's a concern that, you know, certainly wasn't relieved uh, by the governor's speech uh, uh, last week or, or two weeks ago. I don't disagree. Patrick Ishmael, thank you for being with us. Get uh, get on over to the showmeinstitute.org website uh, to read the review. Patrick, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Gary. All right. Uh, quick break, and when we come back, we'll find out if Brian actually knows what happens, what you see when you open a sarcophagus. It's 20 minutes It's twenty minutes after 10. Ron Calzone is going to be with us at about uh, 1035, and uh, uh, we'll... Uh, it, it chat about, among other things, uh, the House Committee on Elections approving four pieces of legislation just now. And we'll tell you about those uh, with uh, with Ron. In the meantime, the question for, for Brian is, if you open up a sarcophagus, mm-hmm. what do you see? A uh, mummy, of course. Uh, no. No, 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 no. You can't what? call it that anymore. What do you mean? No, it's mummified person. Uh, you're changing it because somebody was offended? By being called a mummy? Was yeah. The mummy was offended? Yeah, apparently. Ah. Wow. The British Museum and the Great Northern, uh, North Museum, Hancock, in Newcastle, England, are changing the way they address ancient Egyptian human remains in order to emphasize that the remains once belonged to a real person. It also helps visitors stop thinking of mummies as a supernatural monster. Uh, you can't make this stuff up yeah so it's uh, it's no longer a mummy i want to apologize to all the mummies that i've offended throughout the year what about all the daddies that i've offended throughout the years (laughs) what about all the daddies you've offended them too yes yeah them too (laughs) oh lord um, all right, uh, listen, uh, we've got a lot of ground that we're going to have to cover. We've got a lot of guests coming on uh, because it is Think Tank Thursday. And uh, in addition to uh, having uh, MoFirst.org and Ron Calzone, Dave Rowland is going to be with us. Uh, several important cases that you'll want to know about, whether you live in Columbia or you just live in the country. So we will get to that. But I thought I would share with you a story. It's a study, actually. Uh, Anderson Economic Group has compared uh, the costs involved in driving a battery-powered car versus an internal combustion engine. And it's, uh, well, it's probably not surprising to those of us in the know, but it is undoubtedly surprising, I suspect, to the left. Michigan-based think tank claimed that it now costs less to drive a regular internal combustion vehicle, a gasoline engine, 
100 miles than to charge up comparably all electric vehicles using home charging. Although the claim comes with a few caveats, starting with the acknowledgement that this only applies to mid-priced vehicles based on the national average for fuel and electricity rates. The run-up in gas prices made EVs look like a bargain during uh, much of 2021 and 2022. Uh, according to Patrick Anderson, who is their economic uh, uh, advisor, uh, with electric prices going up, gas prices declining, drivers traditional uh, of, of traditional internal combustion engine vehicles saved a little bit of money in the last quarter. Apparently, uh, late 2022 fueling costs by Anderson Economic Group says mid-priced internal combustion engine vehicles are uh, costing about $11.29 for 100 miles of driving, an average 31 cents less than a mid-priced EV driver is paying. The switch is the result of fuel costs dropping by over $2 and falling below uh, upward uh, trending home charging costs. You know, it, it's, it's never going to be a bargain and it's never going to work in the law. Well, I can't say never. I won't. I don't want to box myself in. Somebody may come up with a technology that that enables batteries to store energy more efficiently. But they haven't done it yet. Uh, the closest they've come are these solid state batteries, and they're far from being per, uh, perfected. So, for all intents and purposes, we're being forced. Out of gasoline engines. The government is in several states banning their sale. So we're forcing people. And, and this causes uh, both car manufacturers and their customers to jump into products that aren't necessarily efficient or safe. Uh, they've done it before. I've talked about it before. The CAFE standards. When they passed the CAFE standards, auto manufacturers were nowhere near ready or capable uh, of giving the kind of mileage that they wanted. CAFE is corporate auto fuel economy standards. The, the, it, so you would look at a Chevrolet and you'd go across the board from their smallest econo box to their biggest sports car or heaviest truck. Uh, you got to get X number of miles per gallon on average. And so the auto manufacturers, incapable of getting the kind of performance that you demand and the mileage the government demands, had to compromise. They had to find a way to achieve those government goals. And the only thing they could do was make the cars smaller and lighter. And the net result of that was an increase in automobile uh, accidents that resulted in death. So you, you saved a few cents uh, on gasoline, but you died doing it. And, and this is not a statistic that is being, you know, has been put together by Cato or, or some uh, conservative organization. Or this is right out of Nichta. They killed people by demanding the marketplace respond to the government instead of the demands of the customers. And that's what they're doing again with these battery-powered cars. You're seeing them tear up the countryside. They're, 
they're going into uh, third world nations and and just mining the 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 minerals tearing up the ground and putting you know very low wage workers in a very dangerous position in some states in some countries it's it's out and out slavery well we have to do this because the oceans are boiling I've yet to see that, by the way. I, you I haven't just, seen it? No. I've I not. heard it's happening. I, you know, I'm kind of concerned about it. Well, you know, there could be an advantage there, Brian. Uh-huh. You know, normally what happens when you 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 catch some fish that you want to have for dinner? Right. You got to cook it, right? That's true, yeah. Well, it now you don't have to cook be it. cooked. Wow. Yeah. It comes right out of the water, smoked. Uh, it's, it's an event, and you see that would cut down on on uh, gas stove use. That is true too. There are just all kinds of um, advantages uh, to uh, the boiling boiling fish. Boiling, mm. oh, yeah, yeah. I think I'm going to pass on that delicacy, but thank you for. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Senator Elizabeth Warren. Oh man, this is the hubris of Democrats. She's not alone in this. Uh, she tweeted out, "Quote." If Republicans hadn't spent nearly $2 trillion on the Trump tax cuts, and if they hadn't made it easier for rich people to cheat on their taxes, the U.S. wouldn't need a debt ceiling increase this year or next year. She literally had the hubris to send that out. Um, Understand that the tax cuts resulted in higher revenue to the federal government. Revenue actually went up. They they did not cost the federal government money. When you let people have money, they invest, they build things, they start things, they 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 buy things. It it drives the economy and the net result was just as the Laffer curve uh, curve uh, demonstrated a, an increase in a substantial one. In, in revenues to the federal government. But what's even more distressing is that she she considers, based on her statement, the money to be hers, to be the government's money. Two trillion dollars uh, in tax cuts. Uh, if Republicans hadn't spent nearly two trillion dollars on tax cuts, you can't spend a tax cut. Uh, that implies the money is the government's. And that's a mentality the left have. And it's bass-ackwards. Doesn't work that way. Uh, the uh, the, the uh, Washington Examiner has a, a piece looking at this. The, uh, the 2017 tax cuts didn't lower revenue but actually boosted them. As two of the bill's authors uh, had, uh, had noted last May, the new tax rates lifted business investment and capital expenditures by almost 10% and uh, the expenditures by 20 respectively. Raised household income, uh, elevated uh, corporate tax revenue, $46 billion higher than the CBO forecast. Yep, tax cuts are good. Democrats just don't understand. This is the Gary Nolan Show. 
It is 1035. Dave Rowland coming up at about 1115. Brian, I'm looking at this article, 14 reasons to buy a truck instead of a car. And I'm not buying it at all. You truck people make me crazy. I only have one. I just have a truck as a secondary car or vehicle, if you will. They're, they seem to be they come in handy, if, you know, for people that want to borrow uh, things, borrow it for moving, you know. <laughs> no, I, I have no idea what you're talking Hey, I need to pick up uh, a load at Menards this weekend. Can I borrow your truck? You know, did that some, kind of did thing. Did somebody do that? Yeah, a couple wow. times. Uh-huh. Wow. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord. In my car, I just, I, if, if from my view through my windshield, all I'm looking at is a differential. <laughs> Traffic in front, I have no idea. They could be like 300 car lengths in front of them, uh, empty, uh, and I wouldn't know. All right, I'm just clowning around. Let me uh, let me get to uh, MoFirst.org. Ron Calzone, a.k.a. Catzone. Catzone. Yeah, thank you. There's an echo in the microphone. Did you folks hear that? Did you? Uh, just a, a short time ago, the House Committee on Elections approved four pieces of legislation dealing with the process of amending the Constitution. Let's find out what that's all about from Ron Calzone. Ron, welcome. How are you? I'm well, Gary. And it sounds like you're hitting on all eight cylinders, even if they're kind of close to the pavement. Yes, even though, and they are, too. Uh, yeah. Uh, all right, what's going on? What did they pass? Well, they, of course, understand that this has not passed the entire House of Representatives. Right, the first but... step is for a committee to hear it. And so this is the very first step in the process. There were... Four different, uh, three different concepts, I should say, actually, that were considered by the committee, and they advanced all three concepts. And the most interesting thing is, is that uh, the one that I thought had the most legs uh, was quite draconian, and it has been significantly buffered by committee actions. And one of the reasons that it's been um, made more mild and less uh, offensive to people like you and I who think that the initiative petition process should be respected is because hundreds and hundreds of Missourians weighed in to the committee. Uh, in fact, I'm talking about HJR 43 right now. Uh, there were 315 witness forms that were, uh, were turned in either electronically or people that appeared at the hearing, and only seven of them were in favor of you know, doing some tremendous damage to the initiative petition process. Uh, they listened. The committee listened to that and, and a lot of other input, and they decided that that wasn't smart. If they want to do, by the way, I should say that, quote, so-called IP reform is a priority for both the House and the Senate, the session. Um, so they went from a bill that originally would have doubled the signature count that you needed and then also required that you collect the signatures in all eight congressional districts and then on top of that, also required a two-thirds vote of the people once it did make it to the ballot. Uh, from that, they took out everything that has anything to do with petitions, and they're focusing on just the ratification process. And they decided rather than asking for a two-thirds vote, they would just ask for a 60% vote. Well, do you have a sense, if you talk to the legislators, uh, what do others think? Outside of the I'm committee. Sorry, what? Do you know? 
I'm sorry, repeat that question. Have you spoken to uh, other legislators to find out where they stand or what they think? I'm not many talking about them. Yes, yes, many of them. And, and generally, I think there is a lack of real desire to tinker with the petition process. Uh, they Number one, they know that that fails repeatedly in other states. When they attempt to do it, the voters turn it down. You have to amend the Constitution to do this, and the voters get a chance to weigh in on that. If the voters don't agree, you don't amend the Constitution. And they know that will fail, and, um, and so they, they've taken it out. They, and I think also, as time has gone on, and we've had this debate over the last dozen or so years, they recognize that it's already plenty hard to get something on the ballot through the petition process. Now, whether or not it makes sense for a simple majority of voters to change the Constitution, uh, that's a different question. And that now seems to be the focus of the debate, which I think is a good is good news. Is it a, a majority in each district or in a certain number of districts, or is it just across the state? Well, with respect to H.J. Uh, 43, uh, they're changing the percentage that you have to have for a statewide popular vote from a simple majority to 60%. Uh, I, I think that's still not the right way to go. And so um, that leads me to something I'm more excited about. HJR 30 was also voted out of committee. And HJR 30 uses the system that we talked about, uh, I think maybe even last week, the concurrent majority principle. And in this case, it's like the Electoral College, or it's like amending the U.S. Constitution. You have to have a statewide popular vote, like you do now, uh, just a simple majority. But you also have to have a majority vote of the people, of the voters, in more than half of the state's 163 state house districts. And, and that was voted out of committee. Interestingly, for that issue, that particular HJR, there were 500 witness forms turned in, and 280 of them approved it. So the, the public by far, uh, at least the ones that are paying attention to this and weighed in on it, they prefer that system to just raising up, raising the percentage or messing with the petition. Do you have any idea what the timetable is going forward? Well, the, the hearing for these bills was just held, um, I'm losing track of the days now, Tuesday I think it was, and they've already had an executive session. So the executive session, you know, the vote they took this morning was a special uh, meeting of the committee, and that's a fast track, you know, for usually they would have waited until the following week to consider execing, they call it, uh, voting it out of committee. And so it's clear that this is uh, a fast-tracked issue for both the committee and also, I think, leadership in the House. Keep us surprised. I know you will. Uh, Second Amendment Preservation Act. Uh, for those of you who are uh, not aware, and I'm sure most of uh, our listeners are, uh, this Second Amendment Preservation Act is, a, I, I would argue, a constitutional boon uh, to people who believe the government's given us the right to own and bear arms. And it's being challenged constantly. And you apparently had a meeting with our attorney general. I did, and you know, I might add that it's it's a boon, not just to those who are are adamant about the right to keep and bear arms, but people that believe in federalism, because this is asserting the right of the state of Missouri to use something called the anti-commandeering doctrine, which is a Tenth Amendment principle. It just simply says that states can decide we're not going to participate in federal programs. And in this case. Uh, the enforcement of federal gun control laws. And so, yes, we did have uh, a meeting with the Attorney General. Now, remember that 
Uh, the former Attorney General, Eric Schmidt, has, was elected to the U.S. Senate, so he's gone. And Governor Parson appointed uh, Andrew Bailey as the new Attorney General. So he wasn't, hasn't been elected, but he was appointed by the governor. And, and uh, Jared Taylor, who is the sponsor of the Second Amendment Preservation Act, and myself, and Aaron Dorr, who's with the Missouri Firearms Coalition, met with A.G. Bailey yesterday and his top, top staff. And I, I've got to tell you, I was very, very pleased to find out that he's totally committed to continuing to support the Second Amendment Preservation Act in the lawsuits that have been filed against it. The Department of Justice filed a lawsuit against it. Uh, there's one where the, the cities, St. Louis City, Kansas City, uh, St. Louis County, Jackson County, filed suit against it. And, uh, and they are totally committed to defending the, the statute. And I, and, I, and I don't think he would mind me saying, not just simply because uh, that's the job of the AG to defend statutes, but he believes in protecting our right to keep and bear arms, and he thinks this is a good way to do it. So I've, I've got to tell you that I was very encouraged uh, by A.G. Bailey's commitment to defending our right to keep and bear arms and, and Tenth Amendment principles. So he's not going to lay down on the job. He's going to pursue this and, and uh, fight vigorously to protect it. He is, and he's committed his best staff uh, to stay on this issue, and uh, you know, I'm just, I'm just greatly encouraged by the meeting. What was, you know, is he optimistic? Concerned? Yeah, you know, and I, I think Dave has probably talked um, some about the uh, the validity of the lawsuits being made against it, and I think anybody that knows anything about the law, and particularly the history of the anti-commandeering doctrine are optimistic about it. Uh, first of all, the state lawsuits, the one by the cities against it, they're mostly policy-based. You know, So they're saying, we don't like this law because it keeps us from doing this or doing that. Uh, number one, they're mistaken about some of their allegations. But number two, that doesn't hold any muster when you're making a constitutional challenge. Now, the challenges are, are essentially facial challenges saying that SEPA is unconstitutional, and you don't make policy arguments when you're making a constitutional challenge against a bill. And so that certainly does not carry any weight. I mean, it's just, it's, uh, and you know, Judge Green, it's in Judge Green's court in Cole County, and Judge Green is a very common sense judge, and he understands the law, and, uh, you know, he's already knocked it down. It's, kind of, it's been sent back to him for some more adjudication. That's another story, but um, it, I, I don't know. I don't know that any of us are really concerned about that lawsuit. The DOJ's lawsuit is in federal court. And, and similarly, they just really don't have a, any constitutional grounds to stand on. It, it will be a terrible um, miscarriage of justice and, and misunderstanding of the law for uh, a federal judge to say that it's not completely within Missouri's right to decide we're just not going to participate in a federal program. And if we lose on that grounds, then, you know, we very much welcome uh, advancing to the appellate court. That would be the Eighth Circuit. Uh, I've had some experience in the Eighth Circuit that's been pretty good. Um, I, you know, I think that's uh, not not going to be a bad place to go. And we would love to see it go to the Supreme Court. You know, we, we want to normalize this idea of this Tenth Amendment federalism principle, and not just with respect to the Second Amendment, but also all of the ways that the federal government intrudes. So, well, and, and I have to say, A.G. Bailey committed to fighting it all the way, all the way to the Supreme Court. I think that's great news, too. I, uh, I know that other states are looking at our Second Amendment Preservation Act 
uh, and want to use much of it kind of boilerplate-like to get legislation passed in those states. Uh, I think uh, a lot of them are sort of sitting back waiting to see where all this goes, but it does sound optimistic. They are, and Aaron Dorr with the Missouri Firearms Coalition is working with some of those other states. He's got, you know, he's involved with uh, other states' firearm coalitions. His, his organization is, has a lot of tentacles. And, uh, and so, yeah, there's a lot of opportunities. Many of them are waiting to see what happens with our lawsuit. And then I think we'll see uh, the floodgates open. All right. Thank you for keeping us uh, informed. And we look forward to seeing you or talking to you next week. We'll see you in a week. All right. Ron Calzone, MoFirst.org. You want to know what's going on in the state of Missouri. That's it. Ukraine is getting its tanks. They're thinking they might want some of our fighter jets. Why I don't think they can actually win this war. Next. It is uh, it's 10.53. Uh, it's the Gary Nolan Show. So we have just decided we're going to send uh, some heavy-duty tanks to uh, the Abrams, I believe, uh, tanks to Ukraine. Uh, to fight the Russians. We have spent, I think, with with the money just promised by Biden, somewhere in the neighborhood of $100 billion. Because uh, he just uh, you know wants to send another $45 billion. It, of course, is money that we don't have. The problem is, I don't think we can win this. It's a, it's a proxy war, clearly a proxy war, between Russia and the United States. And here's the problem. Ukraine isn't going into Russia and making them pay. Ukraine is just fighting in Ukraine. Imagine if we had done this in World War II. Imagine if we had decided, you know, we're only going to fight Germany up to France. You know, if we get France back, French, uh, that's it. The Nazis might not have collapsed. You've got to go into the country, and I don't think Ukraine has the wherewithal to go into Russia and cause them to lose. So this is just draining U.S. resources. I, I'm betting that the Chinese are loving this. I'm betting that, you know, the radical Islamists are loving this. You know, this, this was actually... Uh, kind of Osama bin Laden's plan. Uh, it was to break us financially. You know, we'll spend all this money and until, you know, we're flat broke. Well, that's what's going on right now. We're spending all this money helping Ukraine against Russia. They're not going into Russia. There's no reason for Putin to stop. They're just Fighting them, you know, at their at the, on their own property. I don't think you can win a war that way. Maybe I'm wrong. Somebody in the military who's listening to us right now may have a different idea, but I don't see how Ukraine wins the war. I can see how they bankrupt the United States, but I don't see them winning the war. Putin is a dictator. He's just going to keep slamming money at this war. He's just going to keep killing Ukraine, uh, U- Ukraine soldiers. And he's, you know, he's doing what we did in the 60s. He's drafting people to go into the military. I suppose, you know, if it goes on long enough, 
uh, the people in Russia will will wake up. But at this point, I don't see how you win if you don't go after them. If you're just on defense the whole time, how do you win? And I don't think anybody wants to see us, the United States, fighting directly with Russia. That's the only way, it's the only way that Russia is, you know, going to stop doing what it's doing. Now, there are exceptions to every rule, and I would argue the exception here is that if Putin goes too far, if Putin responds to us sending tanks by threatening or promising or starting the process of firing a nuclear weapon, then I think he gets, he gets carried out of the Kremlin. Something happens and uh, you know, his, appendix, uh, his appendix burst, uh, he had a heart attack, <clears throat> something horrible uh, takes him out. Uh, maybe even lead poisoning if you catch my drift. But that's only if he goes overboard. I, I think otherwise, he just keeps hammering away. And it just keeps costing us money. Now, I'm also told, and I don't know if this is true because I've never been anywhere near an M1 Abrams tank. But I understand they run on a special fuel. Like they, 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 uh, they're just a completely different beast than what we traditionally think of as a tank. Anybody who's listening to me now that's ever driven one can give us some insight. I heard somebody say it's almost a jet engine that drives the damn things. You can imagine with the weight from the armor, what it must take. Um, and I guess they're, they take some real in-depth training to be efficient with. I don't know. I, I, I just I don't see this ending well. Or at least, you know, reasonably. I mean, they, Putin thought this was going to be over in a matter of weeks. We're coming up on an anniversary. We're coming up on a year of this. And how much longer does it go? How much more can we afford? How many more billions of dollars can we send over there? I am seriously concerned about where we're going. And now they're looking for fighter jets. Apparently, they want Western fighters uh, fighting uh, fighter jets, and they're pushing for it. They're only sixty-four million each. No big deal. Yeah, yeah. Gary Nolan, Zimmer Radio Network. This is the Gary Nolan Show.